Good morning, Redeemer family. Um, I have uh, one other announcement slash prayer request this morning. It's something that we want to just be keeping you guys apprised of. Would you please pray, um, not just today, but throughout the weeks to come for Redeemer Point. They were really hoping to come out of the summer with some traction after doing a ton of evangelism and being salt and light in their community. And it's been a tough time for them having kind of gone all in and giving all of their efforts towards evangelistic efforts, but not seeing the fruit of it. We know that we call people to be faithful. We don't call people to produce the results. They are in God's hands. And um, they're having a meeting this morning and this week to discuss some tough questions. And they could use your prayers and encouragement. We'll have more to share in the near future, but we want to keep you in the loop so that you're informed, but also prayerful as we walk through this season with them and as a leadership team. Um, and I would, I would just ask you guys to take the opportunities as a body to encourage their body. So I'm going to pray for them, and then we'll get into our message today. Jesus, I pray for uh, Pastor Daniel and our brothers over in Point and our sisters over in Point. Right now, I pray that you would give clarity, direction, vision, um, Lord, give them the ability to see what you have next on the horizon for them. And I pray that we would care for them well as a sending body and look out for them, Lord, and that we would rejoice with them in the step of boldness that they've made stepping out into their community. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, if you have a Bible, please open to Matthew chapter 5. We're going through a study on the Sermon on the Mount. That is found in Matthew 5 through 7 in our Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles scattered around the sanctuary. It's also going to be projected up behind me, and you could follow along that way. So this morning, we're going to be looking at one of the most famous passages in the entire Bible. It's a passage filled with metaphors that have actually carried over into our culture, and the Bible has permeated, the language of the Bible has permeated our culture from this passage. I mean, think about that. When somebody says to be a light, or somebody talks about being a city on a hill, or when we refer to somebody as being the salt of the earth, people generally, regardless of their religious upbringing or background, know what you're talking about. I was recently talking to a friend of mine who does not profess Christ in any way. He is antagonistic towards the cause of the gospel. And we were talking about a mutual friend, and he said, he's a real salt-of-the-earth kind of guy. It was fascinating to me. This guy has never picked up a Bible in his life, does not know what it means to be salt on the earth, but it, he knows what it means to be salt of the earth. It's a fascinating um, passage that we're going to be looking at today because it's been so central to the development of human thought that it's made its way into common vernacular. And that really doesn't have much to do with the direction of the sermon. I just find it remarkable that Jesus uses such vivid imagery in this passage that it's even permeated the imaginations and the language of people who do not profess to be followers of Jesus living 2,000 years after he made the metaphors that we're going to be reading in this passage. I've read a good amount of commentators 
and authors on this passage that we're going to be looking at. I've heard a ton of sermons on it. Likely, if you've been a Christian or have been to church for any period of time, you probably have too. And one of the things that's been really interesting as I study, with the volume of teaching that is out there about this passage, most interpretations are actually pretty similar. There is usually not a ton of deviation. I mean, some people might point out some different nuances or, or different thoughts on the imagery of salt or light, or they might come at the passage from a little bit of a different angle, but still most people emerge with the same basic interpretation of this passage across almost all people that you would see seeking to interpret that, and there's a reason for that. This is a really straightforward passage of the Bible. Sometimes people will say to me, um, some of you have said to me that you have a hard time knowing how to read the Bible or get into the Bible because it's difficult for you to understand. Well, take delight if that's somebody like you because this passage is really, really straightforward. One uh, commentator stated the purpose of this passage very clearly when he said that Jesus' teachings in Matthew 5, 13 through 16 are the instructions to go forth into the world as disciples that are heralds of a new covenant that Jesus is affecting. To be a disciple means to go and be an outward-focused agent of the kingdom, inviting people to honor and glorify God with you. I really like that, and we're going to stick pretty close to that definition for this passage. And what I've found, though, is that the interpretations, though they rarely really differ, the practical application of how the church is supposed to live in light of what we interpret from these passages differ greatly. And I'm going to argue that the reason for that is because people look to define what it means to be salt and light and to let our light shine before men in such a way that they see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. They seek to define it outside of the Sermon on the Mount. And they go outside of the Sermon on the Mount to look for application when this passage on salt and light really serves as the key to open the lock of the application of the words of Jesus that we find in these three chapters. So I'm going to pray and we'll dig in. Jesus, thank you for this amazing word that we get to look to. I pray that you would empower the preaching of your word. I pray that you would make fertile the hearts of those who are hearing. Lord, I pray for anybody here who has never bent their knee to you and called upon you as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of their salvation. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start off looking at the fact that by the time we get to verse 13, Jesus is still not making any commandments, but is using identity language instead. Look with me at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. In fact, there is not a commandment made in this passage until you get to verse 16. Well, why is that important? It's important for a few reasons. Jesus is not giving Christians a choice as to whether they are going to go out and be salt and light. Jesus is speaking forth the reality of what the citizens of his new kingdom truly are and what they will look like. So therefore, Jesus grounds this in identity language. And there are many wonderful terms in the Bible that we use to share the identity of 
a disciple. We are the chosen of God. Ephesians 1.4. We are the children of God. 1 John chapter 3. We are adopted by God. Galatians 4.5. We are disciples of Jesus. Matthew 28. We are new creations. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We are the called of God, the justified of God, and the glorified of God. Romans 8.28 through 30. And we are aliens living in a foreign country looking for that builder and architect who has made something that is not this. Hebrews chapter 11. So why do we love identity language? You want to know why? Because it shows you that God loves the present you, not a polished up future version of you. For somebody, that might be the point that you need to hear this morning, that if you have bent your knee to Jesus Christ and you have received him as your Lord and Savior, he looks upon you and he is in love with you right now. He doesn't look at you and all of those things that you nitpick about yourself. He doesn't say, you know what, if you're going to nitpick all of those, let me throw even more at you. He looks at you and he loves you presently. That is part of the beauty of our identity being wrapped in and draped in Jesus Christ. But that's a tough message to get from the head to the heart, isn't it? You know why it's so tough? Because I live in this space suit all week long. You live in that space suit all week long. You live in what I love to refer to as this meat jacket that you have to put on. You have to live in this flesh. You know the things that you don't like about yourself. You know the things that cause you to be insecure about yourself. You know the things that you just think, if I could just change this about myself, then I would like me a whole lot more. Because often... I don't see myself through the lenses of identity language. I see myself through a broken narrative that we need identity language to come in and fix that broken narrative. There are times that I get impatient with myself. There are things in my life that I'd like to see gone, that when they resurface, I get impatient with myself and condemn myself because it has come back into my life. But we love identity language because it reminds you that God both loves the present version of you and is able to see you through the lenses of the glorified future you. Well, as you think of identity language, add the terms salt and light to the beautiful heritage of identity terms that are used by God to describe the present reality of what a child of God truly is. Oftentimes, when I've heard this passage taught, the terms salt and light are turned into commandments. <clears throat> it goes something like this. As Jesus was saying, go and be the salt of the earth. Or you go and be the light of the world. We can use that with our children in our parenting if we're not reading this text correctly. As we pray for them to send them off to school, go and be the light of the world. Go and be the salt of the earth. Brothers and sisters, Jesus does not bring up these terms as commandments. He simply says, you are. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He looked out 
over a people, just like I'm looking out over a people right now. And he made a proclamation saying, you are the salt of the earth. Brothers and sisters who know Jesus and are united with him, you are the salt of the earth. This is a deeply encouraging message, but it's also very practical too. I brought up parenting before. What if instead of telling our kids, as we send them off to school, go and be salt and light, what if we reminded them, you are salt and light. That is who you are. Go and live out your identity in the midst of this group of people that God has sent you to go and be his missionary people and allow the world to see it. Allow the world to see who you are. Are. So what does Jesus mean when he says that we are salt and light? In particular, what does he mean by the salt illustration? Jesus used what, in my opinion, is a purposefully generic term because it can have multiple different meanings and multiple understandings. And the neat thing about them is regardless of where you end up falling on most of the meanings that have been interpreted throughout evangelicalism, they're really not all that incompatible with one another. I read one commentary that gave 14 different possibilities of what Jesus meant when he said that we are the salt of the earth. In the ancient world, salt had value. Roman soldiers were often paid in salt. Have you ever heard the saying, that guy is not worth his salt? That's where the saying comes from. You're saying you're a really bad soldier. You're not worth this box of salt, that it was a, which is, blows my mind. You're telling people to just go out and fight like warriors, and you're like, no salt for you when they return. But it had value is the point of that. There was no refrigeration back then. So salt was a preserving agent to keep things from spoiling. I remember the first time I went over to Europe and there was all of these different salted meats um, still made, I'm guessing, in a lot of the the similar world that it was made in back then, and I hated them, but um, I'm sorry, Dr. Burzant, do you still respect me? And I I hate salted meat. I just saw that look from your eyes. Um, Well, just like today, Also, salt is seen as something that adds flavor, another definition. Uh, I've also, I read a fascinating view that said that the Sermon on the Mount really serves as a covenantal document and that salt is serving as a sign of that covenant. What I mean by this is Leviticus 2.13 says, So you shall season all of your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering." With all of your offerings, you shall offer salt. So when we look back to the fact that we know that we will be persecuted for righteousness sake in the verses that just preceded this, making ourselves a living sacrifice and offering to God, some believe that Jesus is pointing back to that suffering that is talked about in verses 11 and 12 and saying, just like it says here in Leviticus 2.13, that salt shall be added to every offering when we take up the mantle of Christ, the life of Christ, and the death of Christ, and we die with him or are willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake, we are an offering that is salted much like the reference back in Leviticus. Salt was used as a sign of the covenant in the Old Testament, 
commentator um, in Gallington says it like this, this whole section on salt is communicating the message that Jesus' disciples are the adjudicators of the new covenant that Jesus is bringing. So what does Jesus mean by the term salt? I read it put like this, out of all the possible interpretations, the most significant uses of salt in the ancient world were for flavoring and for the preservation of food. Either or both of those provide an appropriate sense here. The disciples are supposed to provide both flavor and preservation to the world that we live in. So Christian, you are the salt of the earth. You bring preservation to the decay that is going on in the world around us. The presence of God through God's people living on this earth slows the decaying processes of the kingdom of this world. That's really a fascinating thought. I mean, as much as people complain about the church, which is far too often, by the way, I, I, I hear way too many people complain about the church. If, if they want to complain about the church, do something about it. But as much as people complain about the church, imagine if it wasn't here. That's where that salt analogy really becomes powerful. It is God's preserving agent. And we see decay all around us. So imagine if there was nothing to preserve in the midst of that decay. If you think the world is bad now, imagine if you didn't have a kingdom where its inhabitants were known for hungering and thirsting for righteousness in the midst of so much non-rightness that goes on around us. Also, Christian, the reason that he uses salt is to say that you have flavor. So he's trying to tell you, live out the flavor that you have, Christian. You are a foot. How many of you have no clue why I'm wearing this clock? I'm just, I want to get an age gap here. Okay, so. You know what? If you grew up listening to rap in 1993, you would know what I was talking about. So that's on you that you missed out. The revolution will not be televised. But this world is in need of flavor. In fact, Jesus had some really strong words about the existence of a flavorless existence. And I'm going to read the rest of the verse to point that out. You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So salt losing its saltiness cannot be referring to losing the chemical properties of NaCl2. Okay, that's not what he's talking about. I love this one commentator who started going off, and it was almost like he caught himself in the midst of his just stupidity as he was going off. He starts going off on how Jesus is not saying that the properties of sodium chloride will lose the molecular properties. Uh, and then he just stops himself and says, anyway, Jesus isn't teaching chemistry. That's ludicrous. It's like you could have just gone back and erased all of those sentences if that's the conclusion you're coming to. But that's what commentators do. So what this is referring to is being so diluted with dirt that the salt and the dirt become indistinguishable. And that's why it's trampled underfoot. Imagine if I gave you a bunch of salt, you came over my house and you said, 
hey, can, I, can I borrow a cup of salt? And I said, yeah, yeah, sure. And I, and I, I took this dirt and I mixed this salt in with it and I made sure to fit it. All right, now Pastor Seski, I want you to spend the next 20 minutes making sure that you get all of the salt out of there and separate it very, very well from the dirt. So that you, how much am I going to pay you? I would pay you a million dollars because my belief is that you can't do it. And that's why Jesus was making this illustration. He, he's saying, imagine if you sullied yourself so much by cross-contaminating these two that the two are now indistinguishable and you couldn't tell the difference between them. And that, that's why he's saying, what's the purpose of this? Like after this, nobody's going to be like, you wasted like a whole, like half a cup of salt. I'm going to go back there and start separating these two so that we have, it's ludicrous to think that Jesus uses ludicrous illustrations to drive home the points that he's making. What Jesus is pointing out is that the kingdom is supposed to be a distinguishable kingdom, hence the name of our message, the distinguishable kingdom. And he's using ludicrous analogies like flavor and saltiness to make the point. So just like salt and dirt should not be mixed together to the point where you can no longer distinguish one from the other. In the same way, the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of this world should not be so diluted by one another that the two can no longer be distinguished. The kingdom of God is an observable, distinguishable kingdom. That's why, again, that's the title of this message. So what is he getting at when he says that we're light? And we've already seen this idea of light in Matthew chapter 4 when John preached on the introduction to this message, particularly in verses 16 through 18 where he quotes Isaiah chapter 46 and he says, Naphtali and the land of the Gentiles, these people who are walking in darkness have now seen a great light. And this idea of light is something that just permeates the writings of the Old Testament authors. But in particular, Isaiah has a fondness for picking up on this idea of light that Jesus is picking up on here and using it to be able to show that this is something that should be radiating something. Listen to these words of Jesus. One of the most important places, not the words of Jesus, that was heretical. Um, this is a commentary I read about the words of Jesus. One of the most important places where light appears is Isaiah. As Charles Quarles, which is the coolest name ever, notes, throughout the prophecies of Isaiah, the shining light is a metaphor of the Messiah and his people fulfilling the missionary purpose of manifesting the glory of God amongst the nations. Most clearly, Matthew has primed the pump for this way by the long Isaiah quote right before this unit of chapters 5 through 7 begin. In 4, 15 through 16, we're given another fulfillment quotation that emphasizes all the nations of the world, the Gentiles have been sitting in darkness, but are now, with the coming of Jesus, about to see a great light. In the Septuagint is tophos, the same that we see here, to have the light 
shine upon them. Isaiah 4, um, Matthew 4, 16, Isaiah 9, 2. Several other texts in Isaiah use this metaphor, such as 42, 6, a light to the nations. Isaiah 49, 6. Isaiah 60 is built on the light metaphor and concludes with reference that God's people inheriting a land and being righteous with the result that people will see and glorify God. So this idea of the Messiah and light permeates throughout the scriptures and Jesus picks up on this illustration and he brings it forth in the description of those who would be united with him through faith in his work on the cross. But there's another place where we see this imagery of light coming out of darkness, isn't there? Maybe a little bit more of an obvious place if you're smelling what I'm cooking. Look at Genesis chapter 1. It'll also be projected up behind me. But it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So in this beginning creation, there was nothing but darkness here. When we get to verse 2, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. What did God do here in creation other than taking something that was darkness and one of the persons of the Godhead stepped in and brought order to that darkness, put light on that darkness and when he created light he separated the light from the darkness and he created something that would be altogether unique and separate forevermore in this kingdom in this new creation Jesus is doing exactly what Moses did in Genesis chapter 1 he's saying this kingdom is going to bring a light in the midst of this darkness, and nothing will ever be the same ever again. It will separate the light from the darkness. And it's the same vein that Jesus uses the third illustration in verse 15 when he says, you are a city on a hill. city on a hill cannot be hidden. Looking forward in the passage, that was from memory. Hopefully I didn't butcher it. Nor do people light a lamp. You are a city on a hill. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Do not, do people not take a light of a lamp and put it under a lampstand, but on a stand so that it gives light to all who are in the house. So he's basically saying the same thing that he said in the previous illustration, but he's kicking it up a notch and he's sharing the natural implications of being a light. He's saying light is seen. Light is observable. You don't take a light and put a basket over it. You don't, take, you don't build a city. I mean, you could see a city in a hill from miles away. I got to think of this passage regularly throughout the summer. As I told you guys, I was reading the Sermon on the Mount every day as I was reflecting. And there were times when we were on sabbatical and we were driving out to the West Coast. I don't know if anybody's ever driven some of those highways through like the bottom of Texas 
or uh, New Mexico or Arizona, but you can see nothing for miles and miles. But then you see in the distance that there is this something out there and it just starts to get brighter and brighter. This is what it was like when I was in Utah and we started to approach Salt Lake City. It was still way in the distance, but you could see it because it was a city that was created on a hill. And as you're coming up, it's saying it is supposed to be able to be seen from far away. It's supposed to be observable. It's supposed to be distinguishable. If it's not, it doesn't even make sense. So what does this salt and light thing look like? What does it look like when Jesus tells us in verse 16 to let our light shine before men in such a way that they see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven? I want to answer that partially by looking back at the Beatitudes, but we did that last week, and I told you that this service, this passage kind of serves as a prism going forward. It's a gateway to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you want to know what it looks like to let your light shine before men in such a way that people see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven, you don't have to resort to licks or tricks or gimmicks to be able to make that impression upon the world that will be observable and distinguishable. The answer is right here in the Sermon on the Mount. So I have 32 ways that salt and light shine before men in such a way that they see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. And a little bit about this list before I just kind of rapid fire share it with you. How I came up with it, I just went through every upside down kingdom teaching of Jesus from 517 through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. There have been many attempts to do what I'm about to do to distill the counterintuitive kingdom concepts of the Sermon on the Mount into a list. And some had more because they took some of the more macro categories that I took and, and broke them down a little bit more precisely. Some broke them down into kingdom categories and they might have 10. I did my numbering next to each new upside down thought and I came up with 32. I wanted to come up with 33 because that's like the Jesus number and it would have sounded so much snappier but I couldn't make up one and I think you're not supposed to do that anyway. So um, also, just by way of disclaimer, this has been a dream of mine for a long time. I love the writings of Jonathan Edwards. And I remember reading a sermon of Jonathan Edwards years ago, and he used a word that just blew my mind. He was just making precept upon precept, and he said, and fourteenthly, and I don't even remember the point that came after that, but I was just like, dude just said fourteenthly. Like, he's dropping science on these people. So I'm hoping that if I have enough wind to make it to the end of this, I can smoke Jonathan Edwards and say 32ndly and then take that Jonathan Edwards. So here is what we have. Ways that you can let our light shine, refusing to allow anger in your heart to turn to the place of resentment towards somebody. Matthew 5, 21 through 22. Dealing with our relational conflict because we believe that God cares more about our hearts than he does about religious rituals. 23 and 24, working through our conflict instead of allowing it to escalate because we have a spirit inside of us that the world doesn't have. So we have means to be able to go to that the world doesn't have. And he is, he gives us the power. 25 and 26, not distorting objects of beauty by turning objects of beauty into objects of lust is one of the ways that we stand out as a city on a hill, taking an active and purposeful posture toward things that lead us toward sin 
rather than just rolling over and being defeated and giving in, but saying that there is no weapon that is forged against us that will prosper, that God has given us everything that we need to live a life in godliness and not just removing the sin from our life, but it was we're going to see in a few weeks taking it and throwing it from you so that we're not just returning right back to it. Number six, showing the world a picture of God's covenantal love by relentlessly pursuing covenant love demonstrated through marriage. Jesus is teaching on divorce in 31 and 32. Being a people of the word who don't need to make all sorts of oaths and promises because our yes really means yes and our no really means no. Imagine the witness that that would be if we didn't have to say, I swear to you that I will be there between the time of, I I promise you that this is something, just, just let your yes mean yes and your no mean no and stand to that and you can get rid of all of the superlatives that we have to add to make our word mean something because our word means something on its own. Not stopping to retaliate evil with evil or hurt for hurt, but even be willing to accept being personally wronged is an opportunity to show where your kingdom allegiances lie. Brothers and sisters, is there somebody who has wronged you and you are sitting here right now even grinding your gears about that person? This is saying that, man, we don't have to retaliate hurt for hurt. But people who live in another kingdom, we know that our Father gives good gifts and he's going to take care of us. Being known as a people who are willing to go the second mile. I'm having all sorts of problems with my earpiece here. Give me a minute. Um, Loving our enemies. You want to be that city set on a hill. You know how many times I hear people say this statement? I have to like them. I mean, I have to love them. That doesn't mean that I have to like them. I just want one of you, because I've given this invitation. One of you tell me, not through, your, not through some like cuckoo definition of the word love. Tell me somebody that you actively dislike that you are also actively loving. I'll be waiting in the hallway afterwards. I have thrown that illustration out because of how many times I hear Christians say that goofy statement, I have to love them, I have to like them. I'm like, okay, cool. Tell me what things you are doing to actively show that person that you love them. Well, I don't like them. I don't want to be around. Okay, well, then stop using Christian garbage lingo. Um, praying with those who cause, for those who cause you harm. Man, there's power. In that, Another way to be a city on a hill is being willing to love people who do not love you back and being hospitable to people who are not hospitable in return. So not loving people based off of what do I get out of the deal, but loving that person who has been created in the image of God has intrinsic value in and of itself. Another way that we could be a city on a hill is being very careful to guard your worship and guard yourselves from hypocrisy. That is the, probably the big idea of chapter 6. And I'm glad that it is. How many of you have been out there sharing the gospel with somebody or trying to tell somebody even to get in your foot in the door to share the gospel? And the first thing that people tell you is Christians are a bunch of hypocrites because of da 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 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus could not have been clearer. Hypocrisy decays at our witness. 
Caring for the needy amongst us. If you want to be salt and light in this community, care for the needy amongst us. And might I add, do so in such a way where we don't bring judgment on the needy in order to care for the needy. I remember I used to run this Bible study when I was pastoring out in Colorado, and there was this interstate right by our house. And people would live there, and they would have the signs you know, saying that they either need money or that they would work for food or whatnot. And I remember that they would always come up and people would say, well, you know, we're, we're supposed to love them, but we're not supposed to just give in to whatever their needs are. And I would say, that's great. That's fine. How are you loving them? I mean, if you gossiping about them at this Bible study is the extent of your loving them, you might want to rethink what the Bible has to say about love. Because sitting around and trashing poor people does not equal love if I understand the message of Jesus Christ. Giving for the needy in secret and not looking for any earthly reward. You know, we're not looking to put a pin on ourselves saying, I helped the needy today. Having no hint of religious pretense in us. 6, 5 through 8. Being a people who pray in line with the heart of God that are not just using vain repetition and babbling, but know the heart of God so they are able to pray the heart of God. Having a deep desire for God's name to be set apart in and around our lives. That's what the beginning of the Lord's Prayer is, which is found in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount when it says, Lord, hallowed be your name. Let it be distinct. Let it be set apart. Forgiving others in the same way that you have forgiven in Christ and not being a person who withholds forgiveness. I just want to be very clear to you here because this is a problem in the church. If you are willfully deciding to withhold forgiveness on somebody, you and Jesus have an issue according to the passage that's referenced right there because it says in the measure that you forgive others is the measure that you yourselves shall be forgiven. If you are somebody who makes it a habit to hang on to bitterness and to act passive-aggressively towards people whom you have bitterness towards, you might want to consider how is it that I have forgiven others and would I really like that to be the standard by which I am forgiven? Being okay with not being noticed by man for the things that we do for God and being content that God sees it. This isn't saying that we shouldn't show gratitude for what people do, but ultimately the attaboy, the pat on the back, the that was a good sermon, the whatever it is that you want to say, that is not what we do this for. And when we're okay with that, we stand out as a city on a hill. Let me see if I can get through these last 12. Living lives that truly demonstrate that we know where our true treasure is and demonstrating that even when times are tough that we consider the lilies of the field. They do not toil or they do not spin. Yet Solomon in all of his glory was never arrayed as one of these. Where you consider that we then being evil know how to give good gifts to our children. How much more our Father in heaven who is perfect. So we're able to trust in that and have security in that. When you have security in that, when the whole world around you is falling apart because they lack security, and you're able to say, the reason I have security in that is because my security is in Christ stands out as a city on a hill. Not trying to live for two different masters or trying to live as the inhabitant of two competing kingdoms. You can't live for two masters. Refusing to be anxious even in the lean times is a demonstration that our God is trustworthy. 
And if you were here at the men's breakfast, I feel like I could put them on the spot because he wasn't here yesterday, when Tim just shared about the journey that they were going through after hearing about Pat's cancer and shared not a message of anxiety, but a message of, wow, the more I see as we go through this, the more I'm able to trust in this God that he is trustworthy and I have nothing to be anxious about because he has us in the palm of his hands. Not being a judgmental people. Man, if, you, if we could just get this one right. If you want to see the church being a city on a hill, stop judging people. Let us be a place that's known as, man, come in here, bring your freak flag with you, wave that thing high. We're not going to judge you. You have a home in this place that causes to stand out as a city on a hill not being known as a people who go around removing specks from other people's eyes while ignoring the telephone pole sticking out of yours, seven, three through five, asking God to meet our needs and then demonstrating trust that this God is good and worthy of ours and anybody else's trust, seven, six through 11, actually living by the golden rule, not just quoting it, but actually doing unto others. Before you say that mean thing to somebody, asking yourself, am I doing unto others as I would want them to do unto me? Before you do that inconsiderate thing, before you brush somebody off with a passive aggressive act, asking yourself, is this really how I would want them to do unto me? And is that impacting the way that I do unto others? Not looking for the easy way out looking for the right way, then the wide road's easy, folks. And we're going to spend a whole message on that one. A healthy tree should have healthy fruit, which in turn shines healthy light. 31, showing the world a relationship with Jesus, not just some religion named after him, 721 through 23, when he talks about those who will come to him who truly knew him versus those who did things in his name that was not out of a relationship with Jesus. And 30, secondly, listening to and doing the words of Jesus, 724 through 27, for that is the wise man whose foundation shall not be destroyed. So, as we're, we're, we're going to wrap up here within the next four minutes. I want to say something, not just as individuals. He's making these statements to his church, brothers and sisters. We are salt. We are light. As God's covenant people, this is who we are. Church, we get to be distinct in a way that separates light from darkness. One more question of our text before the conclusion, uh, some practical stuff. What does it mean for people to see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven? One answer is that when we show ourselves to be distinct because we follow a king who is altogether distinct, the world sees a picture of what the king is truly like. That's the mission of the church, to share in the life of Christ by loving God and loving our neighbor in a way that people look and they see Jesus. So some application for you as we close. First of all, you are the salt of the earth. Be who you are. Christian, you are the light of the world. Be who you are. Church, you are the city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. That's why it frustrates me so much 
when people rail against the church. I know I've shared this with you guys in the past before, but I remember when I was chaplain when I was going to Philadelphia Biblical University and all these dudes that were like 23 and had all of life figured out and had the whole Bible figured out, they would go around saying, oh, church is stupid and this church, they don't do this and my church is lame because of this. And I remember one day just getting so angry and I was asked to give a devotion in chapel that day. And I just started the chapel very awkwardly so my name is Eric Lawyer, and I'm in love with Marcy Lawyer. And I just kept repeating it. My name is Eric Lawyer. I'm in love with Marcy Lawyer until it got awkward for everybody in the room. I said, the reason that I keep saying that is because Marcy's my wife. And if you ever talked about my wife the way you talked about Jesus' wife, I'd punch you in the face in the parking lot. So why do people think that they get to just go around just talking trash about Jesus' wife? Jesus' wife is the city set on a hill that can't be hidden. We should be adorning her. We should be pointing to her and saying she may not be perfect yet, but she's beautiful. What else can it look like for us? If you want a strategy to shine your light before men, I'm going to give you a strategy. It's not anything too crazy. It's just going to go back through the Sermon on the Mount. The way that we our salt and light in Tom's River Redeemer Fellowship is being willing to be defrauded for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. What it means for a redeemer of Tom's River to practice making amends and to never turn in resentment towards anybody. What it means for a redeemer of Tom's River is refusing to allow anger in your heart to burn in the place of resentment towards others. What it means for Redeemer Tom's River is dealing with relational conflict because we believe that God actually cares more about the condition of your heart than you coming up here and doing some religious exercise. And if you have resentments towards somebody that is impacting the way that you view them, I would encourage you, when we have that time of communion, sit and reflect before going and partaking of the body and the blood of Christ. What it means for Redeemer Tom's River is Showing the world a picture of God's covenantal love by relentlessly pursuing your spouse. Man, people should be able to look at you and say, those two kids are in love. I don't care what age you are. Look at that. Those two kids right there are in love. That shows the world the church is doing something right. They have something to offer. And it's one way that we stand out as a beacon, as a city on a hill. When men, you love your wives with the love of Jesus. What it means for Tom's River is not stopping to retaliate evil for evil or hurt for hurt, but willing to even accept being personally wronged as an opportunity to show where your kingdom allegiances lie. What it means is loving people and being known as a people that love your enemies. What it means for Redeemer Tom's River is being willing to love people who do not love you back and show hospitality to people who will not be hospitable to you in return. So not loving based off of what we get out of it. It means that we are a church that will seek to rid ourselves of even the hint of hypocrisy or gossip. What it means as Redeemer Tom's River is being a community that is known for caring for the needy that have been placed and stewarded into our midst. It means forgiving others within this church and others outside of it with the same forgiveness that you yourself have been forgiven in Christ. 
Jesus. It means that Redeemer Tom's River should be known as a place where this is filled with non-judgmental people. And I know that I can go there and hear about God's love and not be judged by other Christians over my brokenness. It means that we refuse to be a people who go around and nitpick the specks that are in people's eyes while we walk around with a log of hypocrisy and judgmentalism sticking out of ours. What it means for Redeemer Tom's River is showing the world a relationship with Jesus, not some religion named after him that we tack his name onto. And what it means for Redeemer Tom's River is sharing in the life of Christ by loving God and loving your neighbor. And what it means for God is that when you commit to do so and live as a kingdom of exiles in this world, that God then makes your light shine before men in such a way that it gives you the greatest desire of your heart, that it gives glory to your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for the way that you have loved us, for the way that you have set us apart as a city on a hill. Lord, I pray that people would be able to look at this church and they would see that beacon. They would see a place where they have no choice but to acknowledge the good works. And may we be humble enough to never take those pats on the back that belong as opportunities to reflect the glory to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.